Welcome to Teach Em Up, the podcast about teaching and learning. I'm Nick Williams. Today, we are talking about the power of incrementalism with Adriana Lopez, a biology and English language development teacher. Ms. Lopez, what's good? Hey, Nick. How's it going? I am doing well. How about you? Good. Um, I'm good. I just got back from a trip uh, in Tahoe camping. I needed the break, and I've been trying to ride my bike a lot um, and working in the garden. Um, my tortoise needs a lot of weeds to eat, so I've oddly enough been um, growing weeds. I bought weed uh, packets of dandelions and things like that that uh, he needs to eat. Tortoise needs a lot of weeds to eat is not a euphemism. That is oh. a, an actual real thing. It is the fact. Nice. And congratulations on like three for three on positive, healthy, uh, non-COVID spreading activities. Yes. You know, we were outside doing... Camping, camping biking, gardening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The more I've been researching uh, like virus spreading and safe pieces seems mm-hmm. the more outside mm-hmm. uh, and the more space is good. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Okay. Um, so today we are going to talk a little bit about um, kind of like incrementalism and we're going to relate it to medicine and infrastructure and then obviously education. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's start a little bit with just uh, how did you get into teaching? What was your path uh, to education and why are you still teaching? Um, this is a really interesting question. I don't really, I mean, I'm going to tell the truth because it's a podcast and adults are listening to it. No. Um but I didn't think it was a good idea to be a teacher until halfway through my pro- my teaching program. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to be a student. I'm a good student. Um, I grew up in Santa Rosa, went to Piner High, same school as Rosa Herrera, oddly enough, different times though. From last um, And so I went to UC Davis, did my undergrad in animal science and behavior, um, wanted to be a vet at that point, then realized I did not have the grades. Um, figured out that I had like a learning disability and then that like helped a lot. Um, And then I took two years off to work at Primate Center um, at UC Davis. Still at that point, I kind of was like, okay, let's do a PhD. Um, I got into my master's program two years later at Sonoma State, then realized I don't think I want to be a P have a PhD. Uh, It does not lend itself to very much family time. Um, I've got a huge family. So I wanted to be able to spend time with them. So then I took two years off, managed a few low-cost spay and neuter um, programs, worked at SRJC's nursing program. And I kind of turned to my boyfriend, Colin, at one point and said, how stupid would it be to go back to school to be a teacher? And he said, not stupid, but maybe very exhausting. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm the, the oldest girl in the family, I every single report card I've ever had says Adriana needs to focus on her own work before helping other students. Um, so I figured, why not? Um, I like kids. Kids are really fun. Um, high school students are really cool. They're the perfect age where you can joke around a little bit with them, but at the same time, we can get down to work. Um, so I decided to go to Sonoma State, um, and I, I fell in love. I'm really mad I didn't do this earlier. Um, I am having so much fun. The kids are fabulous. Some, some of them are crazy, but that's also like great too. Um, I've got the gambit of kids who are straight A students to kids who hate school. And it's kind of fun to try to turn them into, you know, kids who maybe like school a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was kind of a zigzaggy road. It's kind of like my second or third career I've kind of figured out. Um, but I'm in love with it. So I'm so glad that I googled teaching programs and found one. That's awesome. I know. Um, And so it sounds like you have a a background in animal science biology stuff. Yeah, Uh, I grew up. Your master. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, I no, I just I grew up um, working at animal control, um, doing a lot of spay neuter stuff, and just I volunteered there for several years, and they gave me a job. So yeah. Awesome. Uh, and your master's was also in animal sciences? Yeah, it's in biology with an emphasis in behavior. Okay. Yeah. Uh, animal behavior, human behavior? Yeah. Animal behavior. Um, I did my project on Dama gazelles, which are these cute little endangered gazelles. Nice. Yeah. Does that translate at all to the classroom? Um, sometimes. Uh, you know, you know, it's, uh, the kids actually really like it. 
um, when I, I have pictures of all my old um, monkeys that I used to work with and all my gazelles and my dogs. So they do like, they do tend to gravitate to that. And we kind of find a commonality there with pets. Nice. Um, and then you also, uh, so now you teach some biology mm -hmm. and you teach some English language development. Yeah, that was a left turn for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also ridiculously excited that I, I teach them though. It's nice. Amazing. Uh, cool. Yeah. And we'll, we'll come back around to that. Cool. Um, all right. So today um, we are going to talk a little bit about the power of incrementalism. Mm -hmm. um, and we're kind of got onto this uh, based off of an article in the New Yorker by Atul Gawande, um, who's an excellent writer. He writes about a lot of medicine stuff uh, for the New Yorker. He's a surgeon um, and writer. And uh, he wrote an article called the heroism of incremental care. Mm -hmm. And the, the premise of the article is he obviously took it from mostly a medical standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, he's what we would call like a rescue medicine uh, provider. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a surgeon. And so he works on people when there is something severely wrong and you need to fix it real fast. Yeah. Um, and so he kind of compared this incremental pr approach to medicine mm -hmm. to a rescue approach to medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, an incremental approach to medicine would be what we would probably call primary care. Um, that's the doctor that you probably see most of the time. It would be your uh, pediatrician, your internal medicine doctor, family practice, uh, OBGYN, uh, a doctor that you would see on a consistent basis that kind of keeps you regular healthy. Mm -hmm. um, even like an immunologist um, or you know, something like that, endocrinologist, whatever. Um, so, and that's comparing to a kind of rescue doctor and a mm -hmm. rescue doctor would be like trauma surgeon, uh, heart surgeon, uh, cardiologist, um, like when something is wrong and we haven't lived healthy lifestyles or we've had some kind of incident, uh, mm -hmm. ER doctor, those are the kind of people that you would go see to like fix it, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think we, his thesis was we tend to put a lot of eggs in the rescue basket. Yeah. Uh, when you compare um, like uh, how different doctors get paid, mm -hmm. uh, rescue doctors get paid about twice as much. Yeah. Um, the, the most highly paid are, tend to be um, the real rescue doctors, uh, dermatologists, cardiologists, um, the least paid tend to be pediatrics, family practice, internal medicine, endocrinology. Um, and those, those least paid, those primary care doctors are also the ones that when you actually look at the data, have a greater chance of keeping people alive. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, my, my sister is a, uh, she works in trauma surgery. Um, and she or any good trauma team would say the best thing you can do to survive is to not have to visit a trauma surgery team. Exactly. Like don't get the traumatic injury and that's yeah. a better option than having a really good trauma team. Yeah. Um, so those kind of primary care pieces are more like relationship oriented. Mm -hmm. um, the, then there's also kind of a comparison to like, that's a medicine scope. Mm -hmm. We can also look at it for more of like an infrastructure scope yeah. Where, again, as a society, we tend to spend the most on rescue infrastructure. So a bridge falls down or is about to fall down. Um, oh, gosh, let's build a new bridge real fast. Mm -hmm. As opposed to like preventative maintenance of let's maintain our roads, let's check things every year or two, make sure they're in good shape. And if they're not in good shape, let's recoat them. Let's put a new coat of paint on so that rust mm -hmm. can't start in the first place. Yeah. Um, that maintenance and preventative stuff is non-glamorous. Mm -hmm. It's like not sexy. Um, yeah. People really like the building new stuff, the new construction replacement stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we got a, a new Bay Bridge uh, five or 10 years ago and it's awesome. Like the Warriors have it on their logo. It looks real fancy. It costs like $6 billion. Yeah. Uh, it was over budget by about six times. Crazy. Um, it is wild. Uh, but it's a great, like, political, people can say, look, I got that built. We got mm -hmm. this cool new thing. Um, as opposed to, look, we were able to repave things and make sure there weren't potholes and traffic flows so much faster. Yeah. Um, 
So you're kind of looking at those two pieces, a, a rescue model and an incremental kind of preventative maintenance model. And I feel like that's a, a model that we can apply really nicely to our education system. Because I would make the argument, uh, teachers are primary care educators. 100%. Um, or we should be primary care educators. We should be attempting to make small incremental changes in our students' lives because that's how people improve. Yeah. So how would you kind of uh, apply this incremental versus rescue model of care to an education system? That's a great question. I mean, I think just like what you said, the fact that we literally see these students, well, in the past, not the COVID free or, you know, present, but uh, in the past, we saw the students every day. We know if something is off or if a kid is just acting a little funny, we can touch bases with them a lot more. Um, and we can hopefully prevent those catastrophes of them having to go to the, the principal or having to go to the vice principal as far as um, behavior issues go. Um, we also have a better bond with them that we can catch little issues that we may have and solve them before they got bigger and they need that big trauma team. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's totally on, you know, you hit the nail on the head there with the fact that we are, we are their primary care and, yeah. um, and we want to fix things or, you know, teach them tools prior to them having to go somewhere else. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, let's start with just like the, the historical structure. Um, you know, we talked about medicine, we talked about infrastructure, um, and with education, these are all systems designed for long ago. Mm -hmm. Um, like our infrastructure road system was not originally designed for, uh, the kind of traffic that it's currently getting or the weight of cars. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, cars have been getting larger and larger and more powerful and heavier. Uh, and our roads aren't really designed for that. Yeah. Um, there have been numerous cases where roads have fallen over because, or bridges have fallen over because they were designed for like a Model T type, yeah. uh, you know, horses and carriages or a very small vehicle. Mm -hmm. And now we're putting Ford F-250s on there. Uh, and yeah. that's a different kind of load and it doesn't go the same way. And I would argue yeah. edu education is similar. Um, it was designed for the 1850s, 1890s, 1900s, maybe. Uh, and the world is a wildly different place in the yeah. 2020s. Um, so first we got this like historical component. Um, but let's talk just about like the value of incremental growth. So you mentioned in like in your personal story mm -hmm. that you had a lot of little sections of going in academic and then flipping and trying something else. How has like incremental growth worked on a personal level for you? You know, it allowed me to kind of reevaluate what I wanted. Um, so when I went to undergrad, I went to UC Davis, I really needed those two years to kind of a, you know, like take the GREs and all that stuff and figure out where I wanted to go. But also I wanted to grow a little bit as a person and be able to figure out what I wanted. You know, this was a, behavioral um, job. We worked in behavior with primates. So I was able to kind of like dip my toes in, figure out if that's what I wanted and then decide, you know, that's kind of what I wanted. Then I went to grad school. Then I realized it's not actually what I wanted. I didn't want to get my PhD. And then, you know, working with going back to the animal shelter and then working at the JC allowed me to realize like, I really like teaching. Um, I like teaching. So for example, a lot of my work with the different spay and neuter programs, we're just teaching people why we want to spay our pets, why we want to neuter them, why it's so important. So it was a lot of teaching. So it allowed me to kind of find my niche. Um, so I like the idea that, I mean, and it wasn't on purpose that I took that time off. I just, was just trying to figure out what I, what I wanted, but it actually worked to my advantage to figure out exactly where I wanted to be. So it sounds like from your own kind of like progress, you've gained some skills uh, through a variety of different experiences 
that you hadn't initially intended to apply to the classroom. Oh, 100%. Like you were, mean, not, you were not originally planning to be a teacher, mm -hmm. but you picked up all of these experiences and skills that then incrementally gave you a skill set to be a really strong teacher. Yeah, I mean, oh, thank you for that <laughs> strong teacher bit. But um, yeah, I mean, honestly, as, as weird as it sounds, I use dog training tactics on my students all the time. I mean, it's this idea that, you know, you slowly get to that, get them to where they, where you want them to be, you know, and you hold that line firm. Like, I'm not going to allow you to do this other thing until you do this one thing. I'm not going to quote unquote, give you that cookie mm -hmm. until you actually sit or lay down. It, you know, is what I'm going to, is what I use for dogs, but I'm not going to actually continue in my lesson until everyone's quiet. I was going to say, it's weird that you have all your kids lying down eating cookies in class. Well, they appreciate the cookies. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I've, I've used a lot of the things that I've learned in the past uh, for my students, 100%. Yeah. Um, and I think you could apply something similar uh, to like your experience as an ELD teacher. Because um, you grew up as an ELD student yourself. Yeah. Uh, um, and so like, let's talk a little bit about language acquisition and how incrementalism might play in there. Okay. Um, as far as my ELD background, I was a kid who um, actually, this happens to a lot of our students, um, is when your parents sign you up for school, they check off that English was not your first language. And English was not my first language. I grew up speaking Spanish. Um, but by the time I went to elementary school, my English had caught up and I was fine. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no ELD for K through six in a lot of systems. So starting seventh grade year, I would have to take this test. My parents opted me out of ELD class because they knew I, I, I spoke English and I wrote just fine. But um, I had to keep taking the test because it's a hard test. Um, I do not think that my, a lot of my other students who are not ELD kids could pass the test. Right. Um, so I've, we have a few kids in our ELD program right now where English is technically their second language, but they don't know any other language very well. Mm -hmm. So that's just really interesting. That was just my past. Um, and I think there's, there's like an incremental element there as well, right? Um, that language acquisition is something that we can really clearly say this is a, a slow growth component. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah, I've got you know, biological kids at three and a half, six and eight years old. And you can see how language is acquired and mm -hmm. how like incrementally they pick up certain things. Yeah. Um, um, you yeah. know, my, my eight year old is pretty language fluent. Uh, in, I mean, they're all semi-language fluent, yeah. uh, but it's a heck of a lot easier to understand my eight year old. My six year old is totally comprehensible, but he'll miss on like some past tense verbs. Mm -hmm. um, like they throwed the ball to me instead of they yeah. threw the ball to me because yeah. ED would be the normal past tense piece. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't use all of the, the non-normal English past tense mm -hmm. verbs. Yeah. Um, and then my three and a half year old is kind of all over the place. Like she figures out a way to cobble uh, words together to make a sentence, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't sound like what we would say is a standard English sentence. Yeah, same with a lot of my students. Um, they, I think my favorite part is when they kind of, that light turns on. Oh, so weekend is a big one. Um, in Spanish, it's fin de semana, end of the week. Mm -hmm. And when I taught them week, semana, end, fin, they're like, oh my God, it's the same exact thing. Like, it just, it, it blew their mind. Mm -hmm. And I love those little moments because in ELD one, which is what I'm teaching next year, um, we really do focus on speaking. Let's get you to speak. I don't care as much about your writing. Um, I just want you to be able to speak and um, communicate with your teachers. And then as you go up in the chain, um, two, three, and four, we really try to dial in the writing. Um. Yeah. And so the idea is that ELD1 would be primarily for newcomer students, students in their first year or two speaking English? Yeah, so it's, it's you know, you just came over and you either have, you know, some of these students have no idea what's going on. So um, they newcomers uh, are the first 
theoretically three years that you're here. Mm -hmm. And those are what I, what I focus on. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, so in terms of, uh, this like rescue versus growth component, Mm -hmm. um, I think we can, we can all kind of acknowledge that like teaching is about helping students grow. Yeah. Um, but then how we go about doing that is, is really tricky. And I want to be kind of cautious because there is still a value for what I would call like rescue education, Mm -hmm. uh, in that sometimes we have to take some big swings at things to push things forward. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm probably guilty of pushing some rescue concepts, uh, in that, like I've started some new programs. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not just slow, steady steps. Mm -hmm. It's been like, okay, let's totally reimagine how I teach physics instead of teaching just straight up physics. What if I teach physics and engineering as a combo class Mm -hmm. and then biology and biotech as a combo class. Um, and if we create a, a new pathway of science learning, is that going to be more effective? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we've started some new programs um, or like brought Avid into uh, Novato. Um, and so we've tried some, some stuff that you could say are like more quote unquote rescue, reimagining how to, how to structure things. Yeah. Um, but within that, I also think that there's a tremendous value in just kind of aiming for slow, consistent growth. Yeah. Um, starting with like, what is the overall goal? And I think that's the other piece is that it is helpful to have an end uh, target yeah. that you're aiming for. Your yeah. end target through your life has changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the skill sets necessary is just like adjusting your aim by a couple degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were originally aiming to be a vet. And then it was a, you know, a sh- little adjustment over to like, what about PhD in animal mm-hmm. behavior? Yeah. And then another adjustment over to like, what about teaching biology? Yeah. Um, and so it's the same skill set, right? Thinking logically, uh, analyzing data, working with people um, yeah. that you kind of build on to kind of build those skill pieces. Yeah. Lots of communication. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, that's kind of an important piece to keep in mind is as we look at incremental growth, what's our target? Yeah. Um, and so I think it helps as a teacher to start by listing out like, okay, here's where I want my students to get. Mm-hmm. Not in terms of like, I want them to know this fact, yeah. but I want them to have this skill. I want them to be able to take a data set and analyze it and make a claim off that data set. Yeah. Um, and that data set could be uh, a novel or... Yeah. You know, depending on what subject area you're teaching, mm-hmm. um, data can come in a lot of different forms. Data can be words, data can be numbers, yeah. data can be images, but um, you know, you're, you're aiming for some skill. And then how do I create the incremental growth to get them there? Yeah. Because that's the other thing is like, I could give a really deep data set mm-hmm. to my ninth graders on the first day of school yeah, they're probably not going to be able to do all of the parsing and analysis of that data set right off the bat. Exactly. Um, and so that's where like scaffolding comes in, mm-hmm. where we create small steps to help students learn, how do I break this down? Yeah. So first, I've got all this data. Let's try to organize it in some way. Mm-hmm. And we put it into table. All right, now can we make it into an image or a graph? Now that I've got it there, what is it showing? Mm-hmm. And what isn't it showing? And how do I negotiate between that? Um, and then finally, okay, now I've got an idea of what it's showing. How do I phrase that in a clear claim? Yeah. Um, and so I think there's uh, kind of like a, an importance there on maintaining that focus on incremental growth, mm-hmm. especially, I would argue, this year. Yeah. Um, I don't know how, well, Hey, how are you feeling about this upcoming school year? Um, I am sad that I don't get to see my kids. I, you know, if I wanted to teach online, I, that's what I would have done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what I would have signed up for. But, um, I really, the connection with my kids is almost honestly more important than the, whatever I'm teaching them. Um, because I think through connection, you could teach them so much. Um, you can get them to do a lot more for you as far as work when they have that connection with you. It's like the idea of like the soft dictator or whatever, um, where you are kind 
but you demand very nicely that they do things and you can't really get that through to them over a screen. So that I really miss the face-to-face. -face. So um, just to give a little bit of background, um, our district, Nevada Unified, uh, is, was planning on going back full-time in person uh, and then COVID cases kind of spiked up and uh, there's a state mandate that if you are on the monitoring list, the watch mm -hmm. list, uh, you cannot open in person until you go or until your cases decline for 14 days to get off the watch list. So we are crossing our fingers and hoping that at some point we'll be able to do in-person, in-classroom instruction, um, but we'll be starting the school year online. And to be honest, I think that's the right move. Uh, yeah, we, as a society, we have not taken the steps necessary to prioritize putting kids back in class. Um, you know, people have not been making the individual choices. We haven't mm -hmm. had the specific leadership or the demand on, hey, this is what we need to do mm -hmm. in order to make sure that our cases decline. Yeah. Um, and as a result, it's unfortunately unsafe for us to gather in large groups. Yeah. Uh, and and it's gonna affect, I mean, as far as like my ELD versus my uh, bio kids, most, I think my bio kids will be fine, most of them. Um, I think that most of them have the ability to do well and succeed, but um, it's gonna be like the SPED kids or my ELD kids who are gonna have the big problem um, just keeping up with everything. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what makes me the most sad because as usual, it's the kids who have either um, you know sped issues or our language issues that are gonna come out behind which really makes me sad yeah I I feel like I'm in a very similar place and I want to make sure that I come back around to that special education and English learner um, yeah. most you know most needy students yeah for sure uh, component but I I've been grieving the last few days mm -hmm. um, you know not because we've had a tremendous loss but like school is one of the most important things in my life yeah, for sure. Uh, I am a teacher. It, I am my yeah. work. It's, it's what brings me some of the most joy. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously there are other parts of joy. I enjoy my family. I mm -hmm. like the outdoors, but uh, school is like kind of definitional for me. Yeah. Um, and the prospect of not getting school the way that I want it, mm -hmm. um, even if I think it's the right decision, is, is frustrating. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's, uh, it's making me sad. And it's also making me think like, can, can I make the impact that I want to make this year? Because mm -hmm. I have a certain level of expectation for myself. Yeah. In terms of, you know, what kind of an impact do I make in other people's lives? In, in this case, mostly 14, 15 year old lives. Um, and how I make that impact and how many kids I get to positively impact. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've been kind of thinking through, like, is that going to be feasible? Am mm -hmm. I going to be able to make the impact that I want to make this year? And after a week of kind of going through the like, oh, all is lost. We, you know, let's say we do go back in person. Uh, it's also been concerning just to kind of hear about public health experts talking about what in-classroom instruction would need to look like. Yeah. Um, I've been hearing things you know, from public health of like, well, it should work fine as long as the teacher only stays in the front of the room and doesn't get within six feet of a student and the students sit in rows facing forwards at least six feet away from each other. Yeah. And like, okay, so you've taken away all of good teaching. Exactly. I mean, um, I move around the room like crazy and I think that's really important. I mean, half of management is, oh, a kid's talking, why don't you just go stand next to them as you're, you're giving instruction, right? Or, and or that like you're just not giving instruction all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like part of part of the incremental approach to uh, education mm -hmm. is students learn stuff by doing stuff. Exactly. Um, they can't be hands on this way. Right. There's like a, a the rescue uh, heroism approach to teaching is the like I'm gonna stand up at the front of the room and I'm gonna mm -hmm. tell you everything you need and I'm gonna inspire you. Yeah. And that's what most like teaching movies are. Oh, 100%. Uh, the like stand and deliver. Mm -hmm. The movie is literally, literally called Stand and... Is that the right one with Jaime Escalante? Is, I that think the, so, yeah. is that the name of the movie? Okay. So like the movie is literally okay. called Stand and Deliver, mm -hmm. um, which is a bad way of teaching. Exactly. Um, because if I'm just standing and delivering instruction, 
uh, there is no relationship building or there's and you might as well relationship. You might as well be on Zoom at right. that point. Right. Let's just record a good video. Yeah. And we'll shoot it out to everybody. Exactly. Um, and so incremental teaching is really more about let's help a student do a task and gain a skill and then let's evaluate how did they do on that. Maybe yeah. not in a formal evaluation, but just in a little like, okay, check and see how that went. Okay, here's how to modify. Yeah. Now try it again. Um, and so the like incremental component, I, I worry, is going to be lost uh, because if school is controlled by like, well, you know, we could just go back to uh, 1950s school. Yeah. Um, like that, that was okay in the 1950s. Exactly. Yeah. But I think we can do better. Yeah, so, oh, 100%. Anyway, so I've, I've been grieving that a little bit. Um, but I think one of the things that I've been thinking about the last couple days is this mental mind shift of, okay, how can I create incremental growth for my students? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way to create incremental growth for my students, um, and that's to focus on small, slow, steady growth. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to have less hours of class time with our students. Yeah. whether that's uh, digital class time or whether it's face-to-face um, -face class time, but we can still set a target and we can still set a skill set target. Mm -hmm. And then we can uh, monitor students and help them make progress towards that skill set target. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it, some of it is like, I can still make a positive incremental improvement mm -hmm. in my students' lives. Yeah. Um, and some of it's like, I have to shift my mindset away from being a hero teacher mm -hmm. um, or a rescue teacher of like, all you need is one year with me and I'll, I'll magically turn your life forever. Solve uh, everything. Right. And we, we use that language a lot. Like yeah. te teachers talk a ton about like, oh, I just love that light bulb moment. Yeah. That, that moment where it all just turns on and they get it. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's not really how it works. No. Um, like we all like seeing a spark in a kid's eye mm -hmm. and being like, oh, I get it. But yeah. most of the time what they're getting is something like weekend and fin de semana. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, exactly. that's a small thing. Oh, hundred percent. And you need, you know, 1500 of those light bulbs per kid yeah. to, to make actual progress. Um, and so I think that's yeah. the way of kind of like, I, I need to shift my mindset as well away from the, you know, stand and deliver, let's be the, the hero, and more into how can I help students make progress? Yeah. And recognizing that it might be slow progress, but progress is still positive. Yeah. Progress, not perfection. Yeah. Um, so getting back to the, uh, the piece that you were saying about like English learners and special ed students, mm -hmm. that's also kind of an area where I think we can say, let's make small, slow, incremental progress. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there are some like first big steps that would need to happen. Uh, yeah. Students actually have to have access to the internet. Yeah, that was so, fun. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk through that one? Yeah. Um, I mean, just like back, I mean, I didn't have internet when I was growing up, but I think that's because it was like a super novel back in the day. Um, so... I had probably, I mean, there was multiple kids uh, from all kind of like walks of life as far as language goes. So some kids who were ELD, some kids who were not ELD. And um, I focus on my ELD kids because none of my non-ELD kids had Wi-Fi issues. So um, I'm focusing on the kids that I know. Um, and yeah, we, we had to be really creative. So I had a list and some of them, it was just as easy as figuring it out. So Xfinity was really cool and they are doing they did a low income you know free for 30 days or 60 days and after that it was ten dollars a month so it was providing them with that ten dollars a month um i worked with a lot of um different people my my family was like here's a 100 bucks figure it out which was really nice um and then some of the kids xfinity didn't work because in their part of the trailer park or in their part of their neighborhood xfinity wouldn't go so um, melissa havel uh, stepped up. It was great. And we figured out a way using her as web perception, big shout out to them. Um, they provided um, Wi-Fi for two of my kids at a really low cost. Um, 
and but it was it was hard because you can't expect them to, and they would eat text message me because at this point kind of the line between professionalism and personal just went out the window half of my kids have my phone number mm-hmm. and they would text message me miss lopez what do i do i want to do my work i'm worried that i'm going to fail or not graduate because i don't have access to the internet which just broke my heart because i actually want to do it um but we, we you know we ended up getting everybody wi-fi which is great and um i just t- reassured them you know you will be fine um you if you don't have wi-fi you're not expected to to do anything, you know, keep using your phone, do, especially with my ELD kids, do Duolingo, which is um, a program where students learn English. Um, but yeah, it was it was a real struggle, but um, the district came in uh, and got a few hotspots, which was great. So if, uh, a few, several of my students have hotspots that work for, you know, X amount of hours a day. Yeah, so basically you spent the first 30 to 60 days of uh, like crisis learning, digital learning in March and April, early May, um, teaching your classes and also driving around from kid to kid, neighborhood to neighborhood, trying to test like, where is the Wi-Fi hotspot here? And can I get a signal? Um, and then trying to actually acquire physical devices. Like all the kids have a Chromebook issued by the school in the district. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but that Chromebook only works if you can connect to a wireless signal. Yeah. Um, and as you mentioned, there are parts of town that it looks on the map like it should have a signal there. Mm-hmm. You actually go there and there, it's, there's a dead spot. Exactly. A um, lot of... Um, not shockingly, those yeah. tend to be lower income neighborhoods mm-hmm. uh, where more of our English learner students uh, are living. Yeah. Um, not only English learner students, but, you know, uh, lower socioeconomically disadvantaged students. So you had to like drive around from place to place, testing them out and then being like, okay, there is a legit hotspot here and I've got, or a legit dead spot. So I've got mm-hmm. three kids um, around here. So yeah. if I can set up something here, like a phone, or if I, you know, until you were on the phone with different uh, internet providers, yeah, that was you, fun. there were times where you were like soliciting old cell phones. So that, yeah, that was fun. cell phone signal as a hotspot to try to then send the internet to the kids Chromebook. Yeah. Um, so there is a degree of like, okay, step one, we need the rescue component Yeah. of just like, let's get the kids enough infrastructure to be able to do the basics. Yeah. Because most of the time they use Wi-Fi at school, they'll stay at after school during for learning lounge. Um, they'll sit outside the library, the public library and do work there. But, you know, with shelter in place, that was not recommended. And I didn't want my kids to get sick trying to do homework. Right. And the public Um, library was closed. Yeah, exactly. So um, that was, I forgot about doing all that stuff. Uh, Thanks for reminding me. (laughs) Like, so just going back, there's, there is a degree of like, all right, let's do the necessary rescue component. Yeah. And then let's look at the incremental care, the incremental teaching of how do we help them gain the skills uh, to slowly make progress. Yeah, my first two weeks probably for this next year are not going to have anything to do with English learning, I've mm-hmm. decided. It's going to be, how do we get into Google Classroom? How do you submit things? I mean, and it, and it is hard because they get so many notifications on their, um, on their emails. Um, so they, it's really hard to parse things out. So where do you click my tasks for well, Google if, Classroom? If you do not speak English and the emails are coming in English. 100%. Or, and I all, mean, all yeah. of the Google Classroom emails have the same format. Mm-hmm. Um, they look like it's saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so if students are not fluent in reading English yet, yeah, you got to figure out, okay, how, which, which of these are important? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for some students, it's easy to go through and be like, oh yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that, delete, 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 delete. Yeah. Um, but it's tough to kind of like parse through and say, oh no, this one requires an action item. Mm-hmm. So now I got to figure out what it says, yeah, what I should do, and then how to do it. Yeah. And there are a lot of fun um, like gr- uh, Chrome pl- plugins that I've been using or extensions, I mean, um, that I think are going to be really helpful for my ELD kids and just my, and my bio kids in general mm-hmm. um, that I've been kind of looking, oddly enough, <laughs> this is going to sound silly, but um, I've been watching a lot of TikTok videos because I've got time. Yep. And there are several teachers who are posting content that have actually been really helpful. Oh. Um, yeah, I, that's how I um, kind of thought of the virtual notebook thing. Um, uh-huh. 
they were doing a virtual portfolio and I thought I could use a science virtual notebook. And they're showing the virtual portfolio through TikTok? Yes. I mean, I, I, it's silly, but I mean, huh? these teachers are, they're trying to, I mean, you know, in teaching you bag, cheat and steal, right? Or whatever. Right. Um, everyone borrows from everyone else. It's just like such a friendly community that you've got teachers on their spring or on their um, summer break willing to create TikTok content to help other teachers. Right. Well, and speaking of incremental uh, improvement, right? Like if you got what, 60 seconds worth 60 of, seconds, uh, yep. of TikTok, how do I incrementally show how to do certain things yeah. in a 60 second clip? It really parses out all like the BS, you know, mm -hmm. the things that they don't need. Right. Um, which is really important, I think, too. Yeah, I think there's something really nice about like, all right, let's incrementally look at mm -hmm. um, how do I deliver instruction? Mm -hmm. Because I think we're used to, you know, 60 minute or 50 minute or 90 minute class periods yeah. to work through it. And if you record a 90 minute lecture, whoo, yeah. you are going to lose your high school audience. Yeah. Um, so how can you deliver the necessary information in a 60 second TikTok? Yeah. I, um, maybe that's too tight. Yeah. Uh, maybe you extend it out to like a 10 or 15 minute YouTube video with some example stuff, but um, you know, how do we do this incrementally? Yeah. And then say, okay, now go practice, go yeah. design something, go run an experiment, um, go, you know, do something with the information. Yeah. Prove so that, that you can, understood. Yeah. So that I can show you what you're going at. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I did during uh, remote learning uh, in the spring is here's an 11 minute lecture. Mm -hmm. I would um, show all the notes and I would, you know, point things out. And it's, I mean, this sounds kind of selfish, but it was kind of nice to record everything because I didn't have anybody interrupting me um, <laughs> as far as students. Um, but 11, here's 11 minute like lecture, write out a page of your own um, notes and then show me that you learn things by doing X, Y, and Z, right. applying it to X, Y, and Z. Uh -huh. yeah. um, and I think that's kind of a, a model that we have to look at uh, yeah. is as we think incrementally, uh, one of the nice pieces is that we've been shifting towards a system of like proficiency oriented proficiency based uh, education yeah um, even almost shifting towards proficiency based grading mm -hmm. and I'm gonna use this as an opportunity to really push me in that direction yeah um, because if I'm talking about incremental growth and building skills if I can start with the proficiency scale mm -hmm. and say here's what I need the kid to be able to do they yeah. need to design an experiment, run the experiment, and demonstrate this principle of homeostasis. Mm -hmm. um, okay, now that's what I need to get them to. Mm -hmm. I know that in my entire school, quote unquote, school year, uh, this year, because of uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 stuff, we have shifted our schedule so that we're only going to get about 45 sessions with students, mm -hmm. and each session is going to be about an hour and a half. Um, and that's going to be condensed into a semester, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that we're not used to. It's a model that a lot of schools use. Uh, it's like a four by four block schedule. Yeah. Um, but we, we don't tend to use that schedule. So we've, we've trimmed our class time way down. Students are going to have to do some work outside of those class hours. Yeah. Uh, so how do I use those 45 times an hour and a half blocks uh, to hit the 10 proficiency scales that I really need students to be able to do? Yeah. Uh, and then look at, okay, backwards planning. I've got the end target. Students design an experiment, analyze data, uh, demonstrate homeostasis through that data. Great. What do I need to do to get them there? Yeah. And I think that the 40, one of the 45 sessions is, all right, let's break down the idea of an experiment, mm -hmm. the experimental design. Now, and I've already taught you maybe homeostasis and yada, yada. So use what we just learned to show me that you can create a experiment to show homeostasis. Yeah, or how can I demonstrate that without directly saying, first, yeah, you yeah. need a problem question. Exactly. And you need to come up with a background research. Mm -hmm. Make a hypothesis, yeah. you know, you could yeah. go through and say all those things, mm -hmm. and by the time you finish saying them, most of the students have forgotten them. Exactly. Or you could uh, create or steal, hint, hint, mm -hmm. steal, Yes. Uh, it'll be faster and easier. Yeah. Uh, a really clean template 
that mm -hmm. students scaffold in mm -hmm. this piece, this piece, this piece, make them do the thinking yeah. with teacher assistance, right? Teacher mentoring during that thinking time, mm -hmm. um, but use the template to do the teaching. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a lot that we can do there that focuses on kind of incrementalism and might even help us make our teaching more student-centered. Yeah. Uh, and less teacher-oriented, teacher-centered. Yeah, if we I think, can do it, if we can do it right. Yeah, I think that it's gonna it's gonna take a lot of collaboration and sitting down and kind of brainstorming with the teacher. So it's gonna be a lot of work, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we need to take this as like, first of all, we can't do anything about it, right? So right. we need to not stress as much over the things that we can't change, but really take this as an opportunity to help the students learn how to learn, right? Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of my students have trouble with that. They do a lot of like Googling what is this or whatever the exact question I'm asking. And we don't want them to do that. We want them to be able to think for themselves. So teaching them how to do that um, and also teaching them bio at the same time is going to be really important. Yeah. I, I think there's really two ways that this could go. Mm -hmm. um, we could default back 30 years um, and go to a really strong like direct instruction, do this worksheet direct instruction, do this worksheet kind of model of teaching, which I mm -hmm. hope we don't, although I'm yeah. a little bit worried based on uh, a lot of the people talking on the radio or, uh, you know, saying like, oh, no, 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 it'll totally work as long as you just do teaching poorly. Yeah. Um, or we could go the other direction and say, look, let's make it student-centered. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on incremental growth. Um, yeah and kind of like maintaining and building strong habits for life. Yeah. And let's get more student-centered, less teacher-centered. Mm -hmm. And since the teacher is not physically present to mm -hmm. do it for you, yeah, like we'll just have to get good at teaching kids how to think. Yeah, I think that's what's gonna be really important and being able to um, give them questions that are really thought-provoking versus Googleable. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the kids do just rely on the Google um, instead of sitting there and actually working through each part of the question, um, which again, it's going to, I mean, it's very hard. It's hard to be a bad teacher, let alone a good teacher, right? So yeah. it's going to be really hard to, to do that. But I think it's something that, I mean, we're, we're not in it for the money, right? So right. we might as well use our time to help them, help yeah. the kids. I, I think that's where I'm hopeful. Um, yeah. is that not a whole lot of teachers love standardized tests on mm -hmm. principle, yeah. uh, but a lot of us kind of default to using multiple choice tests mm -hmm. because they're easy. Yeah. Um, and I'm hopeful that this will remind us to, you know, shift assessments to really performance-based stuff. Yeah. Um, more open-ended, uh, show me your work, show me mm -hmm. the experiment that you did, uh, you know, submit a lab write-up or yeah. write, you know, design the experiment or, you know, something that's not answer these 15 multiple choice questions. And if we have, a th I mean, one nice thing about COVID is we're going to have smaller class sizes, so we can actually do that. Um, there's enough time in the day to have a, each student give a 10 minute presentation or, you know, whatever, so that we can actually go through and, and do that. Um, make yeah, sure that we, the student understands. We're having more class sizes because our district is shifting to more sections of classes with fewer mm -hmm. students per section. Yeah. So you get you know less time with face-to-face -face with a kid, mm -hmm. but smaller groups. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that we can shift that way and that yeah. it doesn't just turn into a, a lecture hall format. Yeah. And I think it's going to be, I mean, it's going to, I think both those extremes are going to happen depending on the school, school district or the, or the teacher. But um, the nice thing about San Marin is our department, I mean, some of our departments are epic. I mean, the science department, not to, you I mean, know. No, no big deal. Not to toot our own horn, but we're rock stars. Um, so, or at least I am surrounded by rock stars that are happy to help and lend a hand. Um, and um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's gonna be great to be able to work with everybody and bounce ideas off of each other. Yeah, I think across campus, we've got a ton of teachers who are working really hard to yeah. try to figure out the best way to do this mm -hmm. um, and how to make it as student-centered as possible and how yeah. to maximize the incremental growth that students can make. Yeah. Um, and now it's just a matter of putting it into practice uh, and trying some stuff. 
Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned in your uh, academic story, it's not going to be linear. No. It's going to be a lot more zigzaggy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fun part of incremental improvement is that you got to try some stuff. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to have to work hard at it. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to have that like superhero moment. No. Um, you know, but I think we all have the experience of incremental growth. Yeah. If, if you've ever tried to get good at anything, yeah. it's, it's nice to cross your fingers and hope that you just wake up one morning and are great at it. Yeah. But if you want to run a six minute mile, it's probably not just, I'm going to sprint as hard as I can at the very beginning and hope it maintains. Like, no, you're going to start with like a nine minute mile mm-hmm. and then slowly start to get faster. Uh, it's not realistic to assume that you're just going to be great at something once. Yeah. And I think that because, so our school um, might be doing, depending on um, scheduling, we might be doing cohorts, mm-hmm. right? So if if me and a specific math teacher have the same cohort of kids, what's stopping us from working together and using ideas from math and science and using ideas from science and math? which I think could actually be really, really cool. Yeah. Because we've been wanting to do PBL as a whole school anyways, project-based learning. Um, so what's stopping us from working together and helping our kids even more, right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, we already know that uh, cohort models are proven to work really well. Mm-hmm. And I'm crossing my fingers that there's some stuff that we'll kind of, that we've been forced to do yeah. Because of um, remote teaching stuff and coronavirus uh, constraints that are actually just good teaching practices. Yeah. That when we come back, uh, you know, next year in person or whenever we're allowed to come back. March, that, I've decided. That we maintain those positive components. Yeah. I mean, I think that you've got to find the good little nuggets in each kind of crappy situation or else you're just going to be really bitter about stuff. So that's what one of my nuggets is, is that it would be great to work with, I mean, the English department, I don't know how, but we'll figure it out. Um, English department, history department, you know, the, the art department would be really, really cool, especially Mm -hmm. because we're doing a lot of modeling um, in bio. So in biology. So I think it would be very cool to reach out to different teachers. Yeah. And on that wildly positive and optimistic note, making uh, lemonade out of coronavirus, Adriana Lopez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. It has. Let's get it.